0: G'day, it's Russell Howcroft here. I'm the Chief Creative Officer of the Sayers Group and a founding partner. At Sayers, we believe all business, all good business, starts with a fantastic conversation. So we thought, well, let's create a podcast and let's call it Conversations. We hope you enjoy this one.
1: Hello, I'm Freddie, producer of the Sayers Conversations podcast. Our guest today is Ben Krasnerstein, founder and managing director of Kalara
0: Capital. Enjoy. So just tell us a little bit about, give me the headline around Kalara. Oh, I tell you what, give me the elevator pitch.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So we're an investment management business focused on moving as much capital as we can uh, into the climate challenge that we face. Right. What does that actually mean in practice? It means we try to invest in companies, private companies, yeah, uh, across multiple sectors where we see a real opportunity for decarbonisation and climate outcomes. Okay, keep going. So we we look for profitable or potentially profitable companies. We're not looking for concessional returns based on inverted commas green outcomes. They These, these businesses need to pass commercial screens in the first instance and then they need to pass what we call our green screen, huh? like our impact screen. Yeah, okay, good. So it's important for people out there to understand that we think we're, we're demonstrating that Uh, in our own portfolio but we think more broadly across the economy now it's all about opportunity rather than cost when it comes to the transition we've got to make across sectors to meet the net zero commitments we've made it's so complex though right look it is um there's a lot of dynamics at play right if you talk about what a normal profit and loss statement looks like we're all kind of familiar with that what we're trying to do is we're trying to implement just talking about it this morning with some of the team at at the office we're trying to implement what we're calling the climate p&l so what is that? Yeah, you know, it shows you your financials in one column, but then has a whole lot of other metrics in another column, which starts to be able to give us a guide or a gauge as to how carbon intense businesses might be, uh, what other impacts they're having on natural resource use, land use, plastics in oceans, pollution, all sorts of things we can start to measure in that other column. Right. In basic economics, that's just saying bring your externalities back onto your an right. earlier balance sheet so if we can do that um we've achieved something um pretty important we think as being then part of the ecosystem and then driving the changes to reporting um at the same time we just think it makes business sense to be focusing on these risks and um and outcomes just that that start to impact us more than our hip pocket okay. in ways that impact us in yeah, hip pocket.
0: All right, Ben. So we're g- we're going to dive into this even further. But yep. you know, I forgot to do something which I do at the start of every one of these podcasts because <laughs> I'm actually really <laughs> interested in this conversation. But let's let's stop. Let's pause because what we like to do is we like to play you some audio. Yep. Just five sounds. Um. And why do we do that? Well, we want you just to relax. I want you to relax because I want to be able to find you know the best Ben. Yeah. And I so I sort of figure that if we can find a way to relax into it. That we'll have an even even richer conversation. I'm not so sure we need it. It's going to be rich anyway, but that's okay. So uh, I'm not talking to my psychologist uh, till 5:30 today, Russell. <laughs> I'll <is was it, laughs> get two sessions today. Well, that's well good. your your psych might like this as an idea. She might. Yeah. 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 Let's give this a go. So the first sound.
1: You want me to respond to that sound?
0: Okay so in order to have the very best conversation you and I can possibly have oh, look you sort of your fireside your fireside your beachside your pubside uh your sailing or you're in a forest which of those makes you you're oh, well, probably at the moment the fireside yeah right yeah because i mean i'm burning some carbon and i mean yeah
1: <laughs> it does it. It's, it's, it does like my fire all this stuff and yeah. i'm a bit of a fiery guy by yeah. by uh, definition yeah. So, and you know, it's an interesting one, right? Fire can be cleansing and important, but it very also it can also be obviously very destructive. So, I've got to personally watch that as, far as I yeah. how I balance out my life. Oh,
0: I th- I am I, I'm absolutely fascinated by the notion of um of fireside. I really am. You know, if I uh, I've often thought I'd like to have a business called Fireside. Yeah. You know, oh, good, right? and then and then uh, I was having a chat to a fella. He um he he rang me up and said, "Listen, I want to run something past you." Um, I'm going to start a PR firm. Yeah, yeah, great. And, I, and I, I want to show you what I want to call it. And The bastard wanted to call it Fireside. <laughs> right? So I was caught in this dilemma because I could say, no, mm, that's no good because I wanted to do it one day or just say, mate, that is awesome, which of course is what I said, Ben. Fireside, it's a cracking name, I reckon, for... in this, I, I, I'm not sure how he's going, but I hope he's going really well.
1: That's interesting you say that, Russell. I was thinking, I think I may have been lying in bed or just thinking about something the other day. In trying to solve all these problems or come up with creative ideas. Something popped into my mind and I sort of went through it in my head as to how that could manifest in the world. Yeah. You know, sometimes when you're thinking about ideas or or new things or or new principles, you know, when you think about it, all of a sudden it pops up somewhere else. Uh, Most definitely that happens a lot. Like the 100 monkey syndrome or whatever they call it. So it happened the other day and I was thinking to myself, oh, well, that's a pretty good idea. But then I thought, all right, if that's... The start of that idea in the world, because it's part of a bigger problem we're trying to solve. Yep. I'm okay with that. Like I don't have to own that idea and go and bloody patent it or trademark it. Of course, right? You start to think about all that stuff. <laughs> but as an you know, as an as a, as I an get investment it. manager, you got to watch and <laughs> you protect your IP. But it's sort of it's interesting. I think it's sort of it's a segue to a conversation about the challenges we're facing when it yeah. comes to climate. Like we've all got to, in my mind, put everything we've got into it. Right? Share ideas. Share our um, our our. our versions of doing things in a slightly different way than we have previously yeah that's one of the big things i like to talk about it um um, when it comes to why we do what we do right there's a there was a famous old
0: ad guy who um said paul arden he said give away your ideas they're not yours anyway Mm. Uh, unless of course unless of course you're prepared to invest in them in which case they are your ideas Mm. and so this is where you are i mean Mm. you so why did you call it clara
1: yeah, uh, well, that was just some brainstorming I did, or we did. A um, uh, former business, or current business colleague, and I um, came up with the name uh, in combination with some creative um, designers and creative people who were helping yeah. us. Um, it's a word uh, that originates in the Dwareg language. So the Dwareg are the First Nations people up in the Hunter region in New Very South good. Wales. Yep. And it means permanence or always there. <laughs> It's spelt slightly differently to the way that it's translated from that language. Um, however, for us, it was meaningful because we want to be long-term. We are we are long-term investors, if you like. Yeah, good. And yep. the mission we're on is a long, long is a is a
0: long game, right? So there's a, there's a term I've heard, patient money. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, is that what you would consider Calara to be? Sure. Yeah. I mean, patient capital. Mm-hmm need to be patient to create some of the changes we're thinking about Mm. the investment product that we've got in the market and products we're going to put into the market do require patient money they're typical VC funds with sort of seven plus year terms right Right. now in some in uh, in some versions of events seven to ten years almost medium term money rather than long term money Mm. in fact so yes you do require some patience as an investor but also as a manager like we are you've got to in my view, we've got to start uh, investing for change, and we've got to make the right decisions, rather than quick decisions. So, you know, we're very responsible managers of people's money. We like to imbue what we do with a long term vision. Right. Uh, so, yeah, patient capital is a really important concept.
0: I was at um, the Banksy Awards um, last week, um, environmental awards, and um, I was interviewed, quick interview, and they said, well, you know, what explain to, explain to us your passion for sustainability and." It was interesting because, for me, it's actually more a passion on how, right? It's like, how the hell do you change your economy to the point where you can be zero by 2050, or you're down by, you know, 40-odd percent by 2030? That actually, to me, is the fascination. It's not so much, you know, the, the threat, because I think that let's, not, let's stop talking about that. Yep. It's the, it's the how bit, and I know that we get into these conversations. It's not the why, it's the how and all that, but it genuinely, how... How are we possibly going to meet um,
1: the hurdles that we've got to meet in order to get to zero? How does that actually happen? I think it's the right question. You know, we talk about execution strategy, not um, – we talk about execution rather than strategy, mm-hmm. i.e. how uh, more than the why. Uh, at, well, at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've set our strategy. We know why. How do you do it is a great question. It's execution mode. So – There are a number of different levers we need to pull in our economy in order to answer that question. There's regulatory levers importantly, so that's what we we talk about from a top down point of view. Things need to continue to change. Current Labour government federally has done some great work in trying to push through some changes now or, or or by sharpening the teeth of certain instruments that are out there in the economy or out there in the Political sphere, which are soon to have economic repercussions, like the safeguard mechanism, carbon markets, generally renewable energy uh, initiatives that are being promoted are really important. So, you need the top-down pressure. That's one answer as to as to how you need the bottom-up pressure. So you need consumers and you need individuals and, and mums and dads engaged in what we're talking about here. So. Making choices with their dollars, changing their consumption patterns. We live yep. in a consumer-driven market and a consumer-driven version of capitalism, which has created significant problems globally. So we need to think about that. Yeah, we need to change the my version. My view is we need to change the version of capitalism. Yeah, yeah, not capitalism in and of itself. So call it a more regenerative, yep. ecosystem-focused version of capitalism, because but a market-based system. Uh, in, in my opinion, is the way to achieve some of these outcomes. So that's that's a how. Oh, well, I'm, I'm aligned with you on that one. If yep. that, if, if that matters, probably doesn't. Well, no, but I think it does. <laughs> the middle piece to, to, to the some of the work that I know you do and the, yeah. we do on the investing side is moving the money, right? And so creating the investment products which are demonstrating to investors that this is risk-adjusted and paying attention to where these future pressures are coming from, mm. And one interesting thing that I, I picked up the other day from a colleague was have a look at and we're going to do this exercise, have a look at the regulatory environment in twenty fifteen when the Paris Agreement was struck. Yep. And have a look at what the science was saying at that point in time about where we need to be. Oh, Fast forward now eight years. <laughs> yeah, okay. And have a look at where the regulations are. And if we draw up a table, I think you'll find you'll have, you know, science based targets or science based initiatives we need to undertake as as agreed in 2015, column huh. maybe there's eight of them. Column to the right is uh, where are the regulations up to with respect to those science-based targets? You'll probably see six ticks out of eight. Okay. We're going to do the same exercise now. How do we get to net zero by or 45 percent or whatever your target is by 2030? We're now in 2023, yeah. so you've oh, got seven think, years. Yeah, let's use the 2030 as the as let's the use the 2030 cause, as the because I this. can
0: see 2030. I
1: can't really see 2050. That's a very important concept yeah. because that's what a lot of that's what a lot of a lot more work still needs to be done, Russell, right? Yeah. 2030 targets are arguably more important than 2050 targets yep. for, that, for that reason amongst others. Yep. But if you set up that same table and, and list the science-based initiatives or science-based outcomes we need to have achieved by 2030 and then you look to what regulations are going to need to happen to support that and you say, well, if the same thing happened between 2015 and 23... And, then, and it happens again between 23 and 30, and you don't put yourself in that position as to where the regulations are going to be, mm-hmm. you'll have stranded assets. Yeah. You would have made the wrong decisions about costs. You would have made the wrong decisions about geographies or solutions or what have you. So we think the regulations will catch up to where the science is, as has happened over the last eight years, mm-hmm. and that one risk alone, regulatory risk or change in law risk, should be enough to get corporates saying, oh, hang on a sec, we don't want to be exposed to that. Or investors turning around saying, well, shit, that's a big red flag. That regulatory change in law risk box when you're doing your DD, if that's ticked, you've got a real problem right. in making an investment decision. So it's sort of starting to come full circle now. We're not just talking about doing the right thing because we need to. We're talking about doing the right thing because it's the right commercial decision and it's also the right decision from a risk point of view.
0: So when I think about how um, an action... Yeah, so not confusing motion with action. Actual action, I get excited. So, so for me, all this change is an exciting opportunity. But then I, I go, does anyone actually ever sell it as something that's exciting?
1: I think, I think there are groups who do. We try to sell it as an opportunity, not as a doomsdaying scenario. You know, it was interesting last week. We had a there was a big climate forum that was successful inaugural event in Melbourne and you know there was a great buzz in the room because people to your point felt very excited about what the future holds there was a lot of startup businesses there or more progressed businesses than startups there was corporate big corporates big ASX 200 businesses there being well represented talking about their own objectives when it comes to climate and making the world a better place for all and so you sort of had this really nice blend of intention and market-based commercial yep. interest, you know, converging. So, and, and that was the feeling in the room. It was about how we can make the world yeah. um, uh, progress along these lines more quickly without being... With, with positive energy.
0: With, with positive energy, yeah. Exactly. So it, it, one of the things which I also think has been missing, um, so the notion of positive, let's say positive energy, for argument's sake, let's call it that. The other thing which I reckon has been missing is just an honest conversation about the role of profitability like profit is really important and so right because that sort of drives everything so why why are we scared of actually saying no the pursuit of profit is potentially very good
1: for getting us to 2030 and 40 percent reduction well we're not scared at all no I know you're not. right we, we say we say profit and impact is a, like it's a flywheel effect right So the question is to why others are scared I think Others are scared because traditionally when you talk about profit and growth, Russell, you're talking about a definition of a measurement of growth or a definition of a measurement of success which has flawed assumptions in it, right? Right. And so if people realise that there's other things at play, for example, externalities or other metrics that we need to take care of or or take account of, and then you overlay the profit motive – Apparently, they, don't, they can't coexist. Mm. That's only because the assumptions that are built into something like GDP, for example, yep. I think are flawed. And as soon as you start changing the assumptions that go into that formula, you might get a, a result which more truly reflects overall well-being. That's what Jim Chalmers was banging on about yep. in his recent essay, which yes. I thought was really good, actually. Yep. So I think the reason people to your question, why are people worried about saying profit is good I think it's because that traditional version of it has become rightly not as socially acceptable as it once was. Because it equals exploitation. Correct. Right. Correct.
0: And, and the use it of... It doesn't the, have to. No, it doesn't have to. But still, in the end, profit will be a dollar number. right? Yes. So it, it's about, I suppose, what are you saying? That it, you dig into the profit
1: and then what's created it matters. Well, it does. Mm-hmm. And so you might have two different bottom line Right uh, metrics that you are aiming for. Right, one is the profit dollar sign, right, and one might be the CO two intensity sign. Uh-huh. Right. And do you need regulation to make that happen? Well, it's already happening. So, yet yeah, you do, yes. Mm. But you will see, you're starting to see it in different ways. You've got different uh, emerging global standards for accounting for nature. You've got different global standards and regulations emerging around greenwashing, as we know, and yep. we're seeing it here. Yeah, A is having it. Look at it, right? Big crack at a uh, big crack at a number of different firms. You're seeing climate disclosures being imposed on large companies and therefore directors. So there's now significant obligations on large corporates and directors when it comes to climate disclosures, right? And so the metric itself that will sit alongside your dollar sign at the bottom of your P and L, I don't think has yet been globally determined. Mm. However, the taxonomies and the regulations, out they're all headed in that direction. What is the synthesised version of all of this, yep. which we're going to be able to superimpose across the top of our profit and loss statements and our reporting obligations yep. to then be able to compare the outcomes of a project, one via another, a road project, a bridge project, a port project, taking into account these other metrics versus the other and which one's going to stack up. Same with us as an investment manager. How are you going to compare our performance with your performance mm-hmm. both based on dollars and this other call carbon or other nature-based metric that we need to adhere to? Because if you don't adhere to that nature-based metric, and this is where the rubber meets the road for us, yeah. if you continue to deplete your natural resource base or your natural capital base, just think of it as a balance sheet, mm. if you continue to, to deplete the asset side of your balance sheet and all you've got left is liabilities... How the hell are you going to turn that into an outcome that either employs people or makes profit or, or does anything that's positive for the world? You can't, or positive for your own business. You can't. If you don't have assets on your balance sheet, you can't then use that to create growth. right? And so that's the mistake that I think people are now starting to tune into. The mistake we've made is we haven't counted the natural capital assets that are around us as actually that, as a true asset that we can draw from, that we then need to replenish in order to keep going. So let's talk about energy. Uh, So the grid. Let's talk about just
0: Australia. We've got a long way to go to get our grid sort of organised in a sustainable fashion. Um, 70% is probably coal-fired at this point.
1: Uh, That's a good question. I think renewables peaked. I was talking about South Australia. Renewables peaked in South Australia. Actually, last year at some point, I think it was, they were providing 100% of the into the South Australian part of the NEM. There was For a, a moment. moment. You're right. There For was moment. a moment in time when they...
0: So that's a nice... That's a good sign. That is a good sign, yeah.
1: Um, yeah, where did it peak? Did it peak at about 25% no. nationally?
0: You might be right. Might, mm. be seven, might be a bit more. Yeah. So anyway, point being, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> and are we going fast enough? Look, the answer
1: to that question is always no, not fast enough really, isn't it? It is. Uh, I think we're going faster now. I think, as I said earlier... Mm. Um, not massively politically, either way, but the, some of the Labour government's policies around the transition to renewables have been good. So I think it's getting there. Mm. There's a few issues with the grid in terms of the transmission infrastructure. So, you know, there's a, we're a big country, we know that. There, there's significant wind and solar resources all over the place. Yeah. How do you actually tap into where the load most needs it? Yeah. That energy to be generated. So we think. The other part of our business—it's a good little segue, Russell. We've got two parts to the Kalara business. One is the venture, late venture capital investing side, if you like, and the other is the energy infrastructure side of the business. So we spend a lot of time thinking about that on that side, Mm. and that's where we're trying to build out large wind farms. Okay, as part A of that business, uh, and part B is building out more bespoke, what we call behind the meter solutions for. Cooling economy, so that's going and building refrigeration and HVAC and solar panels on your roof. Amazing and and high, sort of high tech, yeah. low carbon stuff. So, but yes, back to the grid question. Yeah, there's there's two there's he- there's heaps of challenges. One is building enough transmission infrastructure to be able to then suck out the electrons from the from the projects, uh, and the other is how do you manage the disaggregated energy generation assets that sit on everybody's roofs, for example, mm-hmm. and that's what is referred to as demand-side management. We need a lot of technology to control when solar panels are spitting energy back out from your home rather than into your home, mm. how do you control all these assets in a, in a uniform way. So there's still big challenges. So being the MD of Calara um,
0: and, inv- and being well-known for what you're investing in, you must just get some unbelievably good ideas coming across your desk. Um, and so, well, maybe just tell us some of the
1: good, some of the good ideas that you've seen. Yeah, there are. I mean, it's across because we're quite multi-sectoral. So we, you know, we 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 focus on the energy transition. We focus on on the carbon side, carbon markets. We focus on food systems and and circular businesses, etc. So, you know, we do see a lot. One interesting one we saw the other day. I can't remember the name of the company, but the. Technology was around sequestering carbon in oceans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen this. Via – so there's a couple of – Was a University of New South Wales? Uh, uh, no, this guy wasn't from UNSW, yeah. but he was talking about phytoplankton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. So maybe it is the same one. Mm. Uh, phytoplankton – stimulating the growth of phytoplankton, which actually whales eat. Yeah. No, sorry, the shrimps eat. And then the, shrimp, the whales then eat the, the, way, the shrimps. the whales eat the shrimps, that's right. Well, the whales also like plankton. Either way, it's good for the whales. (laughs) It's good for the whales and it's good for sequestration. And there's a technology that he's developed to to do that, which is super interesting. We're seeing some really interesting and hopefully about to make an investment into a seaweed-based biopolymer business. What does that mean? It's essentially created, this business has created a replacement for virgin plastic pellets that can go into any existing extrusion or injection moulding machine. And it's purely based on seaweed It'll home compost in fifty-five days or something. How good? Basically, fish food you can throw it, it back into the so, ocean. So, so
0: I mean, the seaweed's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Because the it's the seaweed yeah. and um, the cows feeding cow the the feedlot, right? Yeah.
1: So the Asparagopsis strain, yeah, which is quite a hot uh, topic of conversation in investing circles. It's uh, showing a lot of potential to be able to not well. It definitely can reduce methane emissions yeah. in um, cows in cows. Yep, and uh, I think. They're now trying to scale different businesses doing it, but trying to scale how you how you get the cost cost of goods down, and how do you distribute it out into the into the market and get the cattle eating it? Yeah, that's that's one version of of, of seaweed, which is super important. So there's another
0: there's a there's a sense that in Australia, and this might be us knocking ourselves, but I've got a feeling it's right. We're not great at there, there's an idea. Let's in, let's invest in the idea and bring it to market. Like we're 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 more interested in the idea proving itself before we you know we point money in in its direction. So just I mean some
1: observations on that. Well look we're actually probably like that as an investor when it comes you know that's where Colara's put itself actually Russell. We've put ourselves more at that growth stage. Because we wanna uh, there's a few reasons why we've done that. One is because there's be, there's a still when we did our first fund which was closed late last year or well, mid last year. Um actually don't closed that eight, eight months ago. So that's longer. Um we, uh, almost two years. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, um, we're focused on that area because there was a funding gap for some of these companies in, in Australia. Uh, the second is, as you sort of suggested earlier, we think those businesses with existing traction have the potential to scale their outcomes and their impact and their profitability more quickly and we need to act quickly. Yeah. So that's another reason. Having said that the next fund structure we're setting up is likely to take... Uh, an approach where we can invest a bit earlier because it's equally as important to have the startups come through to that stage. So, the, you've got to support all parts of the ecosystem. I think there's a lot of venture capital guys out there, or venture capital people out there who like the early stage, like a lot of the, even in some of the big Aussie super funds, like backing some of the larger investment managers or, or VC firms out there that are well known and, and they take a very early stage approach. So, Again, we're seeing it more and more. We're seeing it in the food space. Uh, There's a lot of innovation around uh, precision fermentation, for example, to fix up the Mm industrialised, a broken industrialised version of food production and supply chain. Right. So we're seeing it there. Vertical farming? Yeah, vertical farming we've looked at for for quite a while. I think vertical farming has a place in the ecosystem in dense urban environments. Clearly that's what it's designed for. I think here... Not so much, even though we are having, we do have dense um, urban environments, but we've also got still enough good arable land that we can grow. And then, you know, even the market garden-style s- setup that still surrounds most of our major cities. Uh, yeah. You know, you can just ship in your lettuce and therefore it's hard to be cost-competitive mm. when you've got good soil and good rain around the major cities. It's hard, yeah. to, hard to do it. Um, so, yeah, I think it does globally have application, particularly in Asia. Um, there's lots of issues with the food system. Um that need fixing.
0: Do you think that... Um, so Food Miles, Food Miles w- was an idea. Yep. Gee, it's, it's, it's a long time ago, really, isn't it, that mm. one? Mm. But it, it it made sense when I first heard about, read about, looked into Food Miles. I mean, the very notion that I've got my Italian you know, sparkling water on my, on my you know, restaurant table it's, is ridiculous, really. So at what point do you... Is this just about the consumer saying, no, I'm not going to have it, or is it actually about... We need to regulate what is okay to put on a ship versus what is not okay to put on a ship.
1: I think that's got to come from the consumer. I think, you know, for two reasons. One is the regulators won't move quickly enough. Yeah. And two is you don't want to be over-regulated. Mm. So I think that sort of... When you're talking about that type of decision, I think that's where it comes from consumer pressure. Yeah. And so how do you how do you raise awareness, in you know, amongst consumers? I mean, there's an education piece... It's making things cool. Yeah, right, the but cool factor is important.
0: But wouldn't there be um, an opportunity, so let's just sort of go on this yep. um, storyline. So sparkling, Italian sparkling water on my um, table at lunchtime, surely part of the price should be the cost of the environment. Right,
1: so in that regard, 100% agree. could not agree more. Right. As soon as we start factoring the true ecosystem cost of all our goods and services, yeah, then we've got a level playing field. Yeah, and if we can do that, the world changes. So is that, a, is that relates to or is that specifically just about maybe carbon pricing? It, uh, at the moment, that's the best proxy for it. Yeah, no question. You have to do more of – ultimately, we have to do more than just a carbon assessment. You've got to do a life cycle assessment of what goes into the manufacture of the glass, not just the food miles associated with the Italian, mm-hmm. with the Italian San Pellegrino. Uh, I wasn't we're not, we're not names, focused yeah. on brands. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. So, but so, so, yes, it, I think ultimately you will do a life cycle assessment of these things, yep. factor in what the costs are, and it could be carbon, mm. it could be, could be something to do with biodiversity, it could be excess water use, it could be some runoff from their facilities that have gone into the rivers which they're not paying for. I'm mm. not, not saying that that's the case with mineral water or sparkling water, but the point yep. is, yes, if you do that proper assessment... Then you start to pay the two ecosystem cost rather than just carbon cost, hmm. and then and then you start to square the ledger. Yeah. See, I don't think it, I don't think that is that hard. I don't think it's that hard to
0: actually that all goods should have a price, and and if it, if the proxy is carbon, then great, there should be you know a carbon price. To me, that is infinitely sensible. Um, and then putting a price on carbon and trading carbon, which of course has been around for as an idea. Yep, been around for quite a long time, really. Um, again, knowing. Well, believing that money drives behaviour, putting price on carbon, you'd think that there was a really interesting and easy-to-understand correlation between pricing carbon and changing consumer behaviour. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Right. Globalisation. So uh, pre-pandemic, we were flying along with globalisation. Do you think the pandemic is – or maybe have we had peak globalisation? Uh,
1: I don't know. No. I don't know. Uh, I think globalisation as a, uh economic concept is important. Uh, I think uh, as a social notion it's also important, but we've got to be careful because I think what it's created is a lack of focus on domestic priorities, Across multiple nations, mm-hmm, yeah, and therefore you know you can lose sight of a where your core skills are or where your core strengths are. As a, I mean, you can take it from a community to a state to a nation mm. if you just think about if you just think about globalization too much. So you know, think local, act global, moniker, which has also been around for now decades, yeah, yeah, is yeah. probably still a good one yeah. because. You know, it cuts. It brings things back to basics, where you can do what you do locally and ensure you've got strength and resilience in your household, in your economy, in your legislature, in your structures, which you need to do. But then have a global mindset. I think perhaps we've gotten a bit carried away with it, and then for lost capacity domestically. I mean, Australia, we have we've lost manufacturing capacity. Yep. Uh, we've lost skills and training uh, and, and and technical capability. We've seen a skills gap and a skills shortage and a skills exodus across multiple sectors. We know that. Now, why has that happened? Multiple reasons, I think. However, globalisation as a concept has probably played a role. Now, I'm not advocating for closing up borders, but... I'm not sure the balance has quite mm. worked.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, airlines, just watching or tracking airlines and air, use of airlines, I think that's to me that's an interesting, well, I don't know, proxy for globalisation or or and or um, watching how consumers behave. Because mm. clearly when I get in a plane, I'm
1: burning a hell of a lot of carbon. <laughs> so Look, you are. Look, I, I think the airline industry cops a heavier load yeah. from a brand... Pardon that word again. Nothing wrong with the word. From, from a branding point of view, when it comes to carbon emissions, yeah, um, the contribution of the aviation sector to global emissions is real, but I think it's sort of two percent, yeah, right, around uh, that number. But so, so it does. But it's an easy. So there's, there's a couple of obvious reasons. One is it's it's an easy place to point your finger. Yeah, and it's actually easiest, and, and, and it and it's relatable for consumers. I mean, that's probably one of my biggest challenges, to be honest. That's Personally, yeah. I try and live as low-carb a lifetime, lifestyle as I can. Right, I know, right. But flying and travelling and all of the wonderful things that that brings and important things that that brings when you're needing to connect and try to do the things we're doing in business. But, of course, otherwise with family and recreation and all those things, it's a real challenge. Yeah. And so there are there is work we try to do on that. Of course, you can offset your flights. I'm not getting into the offset debate. Uh, but you can offset flights and make sure you're doing those offsets with... High integrity counterparties, of course. Yep. And uh, you know, and then and then try to innovate and push wherever you can for sustainable aviation fuel. So there's you know there's ways you could sort of pick apart each thing that you do and yep. try to find ways to work on it. Uh, that's what we certainly try to do. There's
0: another big picture challenge, I think, um, around getting people out of poverty. So China, of course, has spent what three three four decades getting people out of poverty. India's on the way to getting more and more people out of poverty. Um, Why? Well, coal. Coal plays a massive role. And uh, what, 15% of our GDP is coal. So
1: do we have an honest conversation about coal? No, we don't. Because we've blown our carbon budget. Right. And we don't. And then we expect India and China to play ball. Right. Right? You know, the argument around loss and damage that flows to developing countries, I mean, it's a bit hard for China to, uh, to argue that it's a developing country still. Yeah. But aside from that issue, no, we've blown our budget. And they are blowing their budget. Okay. So, yeah, okay, we've already spent what we should have spent. Yep. Okay. And, uh, and we need to stop spending. Well, we do. And right. we then need to stop pointing the fingers at others and saying, your time to stop, because the counter argument is, well, hang on, That's we correct. need the chance to build our own GDP just like you did off the back of yeah. fossil fuels. Yeah. Leave us alone. And the other thing which
0: I think is interesting is because the wealthier the country, um, the more they are down the sustainability pathway
1: fair... Uh, well, it's an, I don't know the numbers on China. But every time I speak to someone about China about how much work they're doing on renewables and, and, and yeah. wind and technology, everyone says, yeah, but they're still opening up 87,000 coal mines <laughs> a minute. Oh, no, right? right? <laughs> Which uh, you know, And they may be, but I don't know the numbers on it. So, look, it's probably, it's, it might be fair in answer to your question because we've gotten ourselves to a position where we can afford to go and do these things yeah. because we've got a certain socioeconomic uh, flaw. Uh, we've got our GDP up to a level, which is sustainable, right. apparently. Yep. There's a bit of a mixture of words. Uh, and so now we can afford to do it. Okay. Nuclear. No issue if it's done safely with good tech. So why do people say it's too expensive? Well, it probably is from a CapEx point of view. So that what people are probably talking about there is go and build a nuclear power, nuclear fueled power station yep. to produce X megawatt hours of, of electrons or go and build solar and uh, hydroelectric or wind and hydroelectric, add up the capex and see where you're in if you're ahead or not. Yeah. Now, I think in certain situations you're going to be way ahead doing your wind and batteries and, and hydro. In certain others you may not or may not be able to because you just don't have the geography to do it. So in Europe, for example, you can't just go and build 800 megawatt wind farms or whatever you like because you don't have the space. Right. Yep. Uh, and nuclear makes a lot more sense. Yeah, but... And what have we got? I think, we're, I think we've got, like I don't know,
0: a third, maybe 40% of the world's uranium right here. So we're like the Saudi Arabia of, you
1: know, late 21st century energy. And, 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 and you're spot on, Russell. I mean, I remember listening to Christiana Figueres, who was the former head of the UNFCC, so the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's uh-huh. essentially 2IC, the Secretary General, through Paris. And she was talking about Australia being a superpower. We were a superpower with fossil fuels we had the opportunity and took it to build wealth as a nation for generations off the back of it. Yep, there we go. Now we actually have that opportunity again to do it off the back of our natural resources. What are they? Wind and solar. And we can do it. Yeah, we can. We just need to do it and we'll be fine. Like We're the only nation in the world who's had the opportunity to be an energy superpower twice.
0: (laughs) Pretty good, isn't it? (laughs) Pretty lucky. (laughs) Hey, and Ben, how's business going?
1: It's going very well. Right. Yep. Lots, lots to do, uh, lots to execute on. Um, some more funds coming through, and hopefully some big wind farms you'll hear about sooner rather than later. And we're building a pipeline there as well. So that's a longer game. The wind farm game's a longer game, but we're very happy about how that's progressing. Uh-huh. We've got a great team of people. It's seemingly people are really enjoying doing what they're doing with us, and we're trying to create a great culture around these outcomes we're seeking. And yeah, no, I'm happy. Great. Um, Freddie? This is Freddie. Ben. I, I, I normally introduce Freddie during the course of the
0: podcast. Apologies, Freddie. So, Freddie, uh, well, produces the podcast, and we ask Freddie at the end um, whether he's got any questions for our guest. So, it's let's right. see what you um, think Freddie's got to say.
1: Thank you, Russ, and thank you, Ben. Uh, I am obsessed by uh, lab grown meat, and I've seen that within your portfolio, you have uh, uh, yeah a business um, uh, that's currently investigating and developing that. So, I'm curious uh, have you tasted a lab grown steak? I haven't. Uh, There's been no lab-grown steak produced in the way that you might think about it. There was an Israeli business who put together a claim around the first steak, which was a great product that they put together, but it wasn't technically grown or 3D printed as a holistic steak. But they're getting close. The company we've invested in is a Dutch company, They're focused on the production of lab-grown meat or cultured meat. They're aiming to produce mince, if you like. Not if you like, mince. Uh, The key things you've got to do there is proliferate cells and then differentiate them. Differentiation of the cells is the harder part. That turns it into muscle such that you end up with a real steak or a real mince Mm. product. Once you've done that, and they have, it's just super expensive, It's genetically indistinguishable from the meat that you would find from a cow because it's It's a biopsy taken from a cow and then proliferated. So (laughs) I share your passion and interest in it. It's a long way off still, I think, from it appearing on supermarket shelves or in burgers at McDonald's. But, look, I'm a big advocate for that solution. I'm also a big advocate for other solutions in red meat or livestock sector. You've got to use cattle still, very, very important uh, part of the part of economies globally and, and and part of people's culture globally so there's always going to be a place for livestock but well-managed mm-hmm. grazing techniques and and much more sustainable approaches and then also the plant-based analogs i think are important so i think you've got three big solutions which need to change a significant uh problem in in that sector but yeah lab growing is super exciting so, um, just as we as we, it,
0: it it does amuse me a little that you chose fire. I just, yes, I just, uh, I have it fun. won't amuse my wife. She'll be like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, of course <laughs> he said fire." Well, there is there are very few things more joyful than sitting around a fire and solving problems. It's a great place to solve problems. I was just thinking, you, know, you mentioned whales earlier. So, the world has done a very good job at um, ensuring that whales are still with us because it's not that long ago that whales were considered to be under threat. So, um, what save the whale? Mm. So the world got together and did that. Um, Ozone layer. Now, the most recent thing I've read about the ozone layer is it's just about repaired itself. So I think we're good when there's a problem, but maybe if it's... okay, I just want you to be optimistic. Give me an optimistic sense of the future,
1: please, Ben. Yeah, no, I I am optimistic. Uh, I am optimistic about it, Russell. I think if we continue on the regulatory framework or pathway that we're on here now, and we don't revert or reverse... I'm talking about Australia now and we get some policy consistency and we get some frameworks and we get some investment certainty, then I think that, that you know, the charge towards renewables is, is, is going to happen yeah. and can happen. And that will cause a huge shift in, uh, in a few things. One is domestic emissions – but two, if we can start to do that and demonstrate that leadership through other regions around us, use the technologies, use the smarts around, as we said, grid management when you've got a renewable-based grid and export all of that to the world, <laughs> let alone exporting through pipes under the Java Sea. am not quite talking about that, but that could still happen. Yeah. So you could do it both ways. You then cut out the major source of fossil fuels. So if we can transition globally towards renewables and storage in a way that, we're, we're, that we we think we can, then you've cut out a huge, huge chunk. And so I'm, I'm definitely optimistic that we can do that domestically and then export that know-how. And then I'm also optimistic. I think there's enough consumer pressure building and enough corporate and investor willingness to shift the money that we will get there. Do we get there late... Do we get there in time? Who knows? But we've just got to keep cracking in. Like, you know, I wake up every day and just keep feeling good about what we're doing. I think others who do it should feel good about themselves yep. Yep. and should take kudos for really just giving it a crack. And um, I'm optimistic about it. Good man, Ben. Great to chat to you. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity, Russell.